All right, before we get into things, let's, let's, let's pray. It's been a, you know, we've done a few times already today, but before we uh, take communion and, and go through the sermon, let's, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Father, we are all incredibly grateful, Father, for the Birmingham Church, Father. Um, I, you know, it, it's wild, Father. My wife and I were talking, Father, yesterday. It, it only feels like yesterday, Father, we moved down from uh, Manchester, Father, but it's nearly four years now that we've been here. and We are so grateful, God, to be a part of this church, Father. Um, Father, so many great people, so many great experiences and memories, Father. So many people who have, you know, even as we've seen over the last few weeks, stories of faith, whether they're, you know, six weeks old in the faith, Father, or, you know, 20, 30 years, Father, just incredible steps of faith that they've taken, Father, perseverance and a stand, Father. God, I know, Father, you know, when I read through, you know, when I try and get a sense of how you feel about your churches, Father, I, you know, there's nowhere better really than a revelation, Father, in some ways, God, and how you, you keep on commending the churches. No matter what was going on in the churches, you keep on commending them, Father, for their faith, for their perseverance, Father, for their hard works and deeds, for their faithfulness, Father, through the years. Because being a Christian is not easy, Father, and I know Jesus understands that, Father. And, Father, I, you know, I just really want to thank you, Father, for the love that you have for your church, Father, for your perseverance, Father, for the fact that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Father, that your vision never fails, Father, that your plan never fails, Father. You persevere with us, Father. Even when we fall short, God, you are the God of second chances. Heavenly Father, I also just want to ask you, Father, that as we go through, you know, thinking about generational lift, not just the sermon today, Father, but this kind of point that we're at in the church, Father, a kind of a, almost like a new uh, step, a new uh, period, Father, a new period or, or, or era for the Birmingham church, Father. I really pray that each of us today, Father, can take something from the sermon, God, that will be meaningful, Father, that will impact our lives and our families' lives, Father, uh, you know, our colleagues' lives around us, Father, our neighbors, God, next door to us, Father. Father, we love you, God. Please speak through me today, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We've been doing generational lift for the last uh, few uh, weeks. If you've been kind of in and out, I've been doing some Kingdom Kids things, and we've been away traveling to London and various other things. So I've caught bits of things and then listened to some stuff on the Internet. You know, so, so, so we've been talking about generational lift, which is this, this idea that you know, people in movements of all different kinds, you know, particularly church movements or religious movements, they go through periods where you know, it might be a kind of 30-year period or something, and then a new generation starts to take over or take the mantle, you know, from the, the previous generation, and, and they look to the example that was set before them, you know, and that there are all sorts of problems that can occur when that happens, but also it can be a real chance for a new period of energy in, in movements or in the church. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, I want to start with a quick, oh, wrong way, down, down, there we go. All right, okay, so, so this is, this is uh, uh, my kids. Uh, Asian Levi, if you've not met them before, they, they usually look happier than that. Let me tell you why they weren't looking so happy that day. It was all my fault. Um, uh, I take responsibility. So we had the chance this summer to go to uh, Europe. We traveled around. We drove around Europe. It was phenomenal. We went to Venice, right? And, and that's Venice, uh, St. Mark's Square in Venice. And, and it's, Venice is beautiful. And I remember going there in the mid-1990s. And, and, and this is, my wife will, you know, tell you this is true. I... I, I I'm usually quite confident about, I know my way around places, and, you know, I'm, I'll be fine. I've got this one covered, etc., etc. So I had in my mind from the 1990s, I don't know why exactly, but I was like, Venice is quite small, and, you know, we'll be fine. And so Raquel was going off to do something, and I said, I'll take the kids. We'll walk from the train station to St. Mark's Square. And I had in my mind that that's probably, you know, a few hundred meters or whatever. Anyway, so Raquel went off, and I kind of Googled it on my sat-nav thing, you know. And I realized, oh my goodness, wow, it's 2.1 miles across. It actually, like, as a flow, flow cries, as the crow flies, flow cries, as the crow flies, it's actually not that far. But Venice has these crazy little avenues and all this kind of stuff, which the kids, I'm telling you, so it was 30 degrees heat. I mean, we were, we were duck, we were high, you know, kind of running for cover, kind of trying to find some shade and things. It was, my kid. Bless them. They, they, they were great. We were like, oh, here's a water fountain over there. Just cover yourselves in water, right? I, I, I was like, give me your hats. So we had these hats. And I filled the hats with water. I put the hats on their head. Water, they were like, oh, we, you know, we're going to survive. Anyway, we got to St. Mark's Square. And I said, can I take a photo? And they just did. That, that, that's not a fake face. That's a real, I don't want a photo. I'm hot. My, my daughter does. She's like me. She doesn't do well in the heat. Anyway, but there was a point, right? Because originally, not only was it a long journey, but, but I had a problem. 
I had limited battery on my phone and limited data, right? So what I kind of thought was, I will, I will, I will look at the map, you know, the kind of, and, and, and I'll memorize it. I thought, you know, here's me trusting my own instincts again. I thought, I'll memorize the thing. I'll turn my phone off. We'll go for, you know, five minutes. Then I'll check again, and then we'll kind of go another five minutes. And It was 2.1 miles originally. I think we probably walked about four, to be honest, before we got there. Because it's crazy, right? There's not proper signposts. I was like kind of, and, and, then, and then my sat-nav, I blame my sat-nav. I blame the sat-nav. It kept changing. So I would, I would look and I'd be like, hold on. We took, and I'd turn around and then it would, I'd be like, oh, what, you know? So I was, I was onto a loser from the start. But I think the Christian life is a little bit like that as well. <laughs> not a broken sat-nav. But, but as in, sometimes we have to take a look back at the map. Right, because, you know, at all sorts of stages, like, you know, I, I don't know about you, but, but, but I find it hard, even if I read my Bible in the morning, I find it hard by two o'clock in the afternoon to have remembered, like, you know, what was I read? What did I, what did I read this morning? What, what, what was it talking about? I always have to kind of force myself to, sometimes to kind of think, what was my quiet time this morning? What was my Bible study actually about? But how much bigger, you know, if you think about like five years, ten years of your life, of your Christian life, that, that, that you can kind of, you know, go through a period and you kind of think, I'm on the right, I'm, I know where I'm going, I kind of, I, you know, I remember, but, but, but what I remember from my little sat-nav actually turned out to be, but when I opened it up again, I thought, man, flat out, you know, I was wrong. And I want us to, to, to do a little bit of that again today, to look at our kind of spiritual sat-navs. We're going to look at the, uh, the after the exiles period. So, so in, in, in Israel's history, for those not familiar, you know, they, 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 they established the nation of Israel and they were there and then they had one bad king after another, and then there was a kind of, there was a good king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king. And eventually God got kind of like tired of it and said, right, that's it, it's, it, you know, it's over, you're going to go into exile, into Babylon. And then after that, there's this period of books that are written. And we're going to have a, a very kind of, you know, snapshot view of a few of these books, because this for them was their generational lift. They came back to the promised land, and I'll give you some kind of history to that in a minute or two, but they came back to the promised land, but they had to almost kind of go back to their spiritual satnavs and kind of go, well, you know, what was it that, that our faith was about? What, what was it that God had in mind for us to be, to be doing? How, how were we meant to live? And the figures we're going to look at today were almost like the kind of the, the, the reminders that were given to them of, of this is what God had in mind. So if you flick with me to, or turn with me on your iPads, etc. Up, down, down, not up, down, not up. I have a clip one of these for work, and I always, up, up is my one, but no, this is down, this is down, okay. That's me, there you go, don't want to ask for directions. Anyway, all right, so, so we're going to start off, so, so, so this is the kind of the chronology of this, and I don't know, this doesn't, you know, not everyone is that interested in this, I quite like trying to figure out, because it occurred to me, I was kind of walking out a minute ago to get a drink, and it just, like sometimes sermons, you know, you know, we, we, Jesus did this, like he, he created par- parables, and their life, you know, allegorical stories about things to, to teach a message, but but it just occurred to me two minutes ago as I was walking out, this actually happened. Like the lessons we're going to look at today, they actually happened. They're historical facts. Right? They're, 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 and, and, and what God was trying to teach them through these periods were, were unbelievable life lessons, but they're actually historically accurate and true. So we're going to start off with, with Haggai. So the year for this now is 520 B.C. And, and, and as you can see from that, in, in 586, uh, Jerusalem had been overrun. The Babylonians, which were this you know, great empire at the time, they had come and they destroyed Jerusalem after years of 400 years. God had been trying to get through to his people, sending the messenger after messenger. And you kind of think about that. You think, man, whoa, 400 years God had been trying to get a message through to them. And for all sorts of reasons, they didn't, they, you know, they... they whatever, you know, it's not for, meant for me, it's for someone else, or whatever, they didn't get it, and in 586, God said, okay, look, you know, they, 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 I've, I've been warning you for ages, but you, you haven't, you haven't listened, 586, the temple gets destroyed, and then they go through this period of captivity, and in 538 BC, you can see that the, the next little marker along on the bottom, 538 BC, the, 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 the 42,000 Jews decided, right, you know, we're going to come back, we're going to leave Babylon, and we're going to come back to rebuild the temple. And they started that work, right? 
The foundations were laid in 536 BC. So they arrived back from captivity. 42,000 of them, which actually wasn't an awful lot. A lot of them stayed back in Babylon. We'll come back to that. But but 42,000 decided we want to go back. We want to rebuild. And then they faced all sorts of opposition. Opposition came, challenges. People said, don't do it. You know, all these neighboring uh, uh, tribes kind of came and started, started to attack them, etc., etc., etc. And so for 18 years, the work on the temple s- stopped. And then we pick up the story in Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 2. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. In the, in the message version, it, it, it's this. Take a good, hard look at your life. Think it over. And four times in the message, that, that phrase is repeated. You know, Haggai comes along, and, 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 and this is 520, and, and, and he has this message, and he starts off almost with, a lot of scholars think he starts with the leaders. And he says to the leaders, look, you know, these people... They say now is not the time to rebuild the temple. Then Haggai turns to the people and he says, but God has a message for you, for the, for the 42,000 who came back those years ago. And he says, look, look at your paneled houses and then look at God's house. Look at your paneled houses and look at God's house. There's a lot of debate about you know, what, 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 were the, what were these paneled houses? What's he talking about? And most scholars think, well, you know, panel houses were just a, you know, they were, they were luxury type houses. They were a type of probably, you know, cedar or something like paneling inside the houses and often on the ceilings as well. But it was a form of, you know, Haggai was saying, look at the state of, you know, look at the luxury of your own house that you focused on building, that you've taken the time and the effort and the energy and the devotion and the care to build and then look and and. and my house, well, there's, there's a foundation, and that's it. The temple is a foundation, but that's it. You know? And this is so, you know, the, Haggai, the message of it, I think, is so relevant to us. Because this was the beginning, if you like, of their generational lift. You know, and, 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 and Haggai is talking to people who, they, these have been the radical ones. So, so, so for 70 years, they had lived in Babylon... And then, and then this edict had gone out. Anyone who, anyone who feels like God's put it on their heart to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild, come, let, let's, let's go. The majority of the Jews didn't go. Now, some of them may have been too old, but a lot of them had probably, after 70 years, they'd gotten established. They'd kind of, you know, we're, we're here in, in Babylon, and, you know, we've kind of gotten used to it. We, you know, it's a lot of hassle to go back. It's not really that much of our priority anymore. We can worship God kind of where we are, etc., etc., but not these guys. These guys have been the radical ones. And it says at the beginning of Ezra, you know, that those who God's heart had moved. So, so God stirred their hearts. These were the radical ones. They had said goodbye to family and friends in Babylon. And they had come back to Jerusalem. But over time, they would had other priorities. They had excuses. And 18 years went past. And you get the sense when Haggai speaks to them that he's almost trying to kind of snap. I can't. I broke my finger this, so I can't. I chopped the end of my finger off this time. I figure I can't click with that finger. Oh, oh. it's a miracle. I've been healed. Wow, four months I've not been able to click. Awesome. That kind of hurts, actually. I won't do that anymore. But, but you kind of get the sense that the, if the end of my finger kind of falls off, I'll carry on. But can someone find it for me? Okay. But, but, but you kind of get the sense that Haggai was trying to say to them, look, wake up, wake up, wake up, look around you. Four times he says it, take a good, hard look at your life, think it over. For those of us who've been Christians for a number of years, let, let, me, let me throw it out there. What, you know, 18 years for them, where were you 18 years ago as a disciple? Now, that won't work for all of us. Some of us, you know, some of us were disciples and some of us maybe weren't necessarily in a good place 18 years ago. But some of us can think back 18 years and think, wow, you know, actually, 
hmm, that's interesting. What did my life look like 18 years ago? You know, did I expect that I would be here 18 years from now? Because the truth is, and I think this is the real lesson from Haggai, the more I studied and read through this, is, is we get very good at sort of rationalizing to ourselves. You know, the, the way that our life looks. I've got to be honest, I, I think most of the time, if you're anything like me, you just don't think about it much. You just kind of get on with a kind of a pattern of how you do things. You don't really spend an awful lot of time kind of contemplating, hey, what does my life look like? I don't think we do that an, an awful I think probably we should do it a bit more. But, but I, get, I get into routines of things. I just, you know, life moves fast, etc. But, but let, let, me, let me throw this out there. If, if, if we had just studied the Bible with someone, right, who had just done a disciple, they were a soft-hearted person, right, and they'd just studied discipleship for the first time, and they'd seen, wow, you know, wow, this is about, this is about putting God first. This is about following Jesus ahead of my, ahead of my family and my, you know, my, my wife or my kids or my parents or whatever it is. This is about, you know, praying and reading my Bible with all of my heart. And this is about sharing my faith everywhere I go, making disciples everywhere. The Acts 8 thing, you know, the leaders were left in Jerusalem, but they went out from there. That Everyone else went who wasn't a leader and they shared their faith everywhere they went. And this is about the church growing. This is about helping the poor everywhere I go and, and giving God my whole heart and giving of my best sacrificially, financially. And you'd study the Bible with someone. And then you said, please, you know, go spend a week with any one of our disciples. Go, go spend a week in, in your house. What would they say? If they spent a week living with you, would they say, yeah, I see this. And maybe they would. And, you know, but but, but yeah, I see I, what, what I saw there. In Luke 9 and in Luke 14 and in Acts 8 and in Acts 2. The, you know, I see that in your life or, or, or not. You know, I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, gosh, you know. I remember, I remember, flat, um, I don't know what year it was, 1999 maybe. And I was being a Christian for, for a, maybe less than a year. And, 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 you know, that was still, like, I remember studying the Bible. Having come from a religious family. I remember studying discipleship and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, flat oh my goodness, wow, the world is lost and we've got to help people and share our faith everywhere. And, and I just, I, I was like, I'm, I'm going to do that. I, that that's, that's it, right? That's discipleship. And I remember going into this um, Sainsbury's where we, I was living in Fallowfield and there was this big uh, Sainsbury's supermarket. And I, and I would just, I, I, like, I, it almost feels like a distant memory, but I, like, I would share my faith everywhere I went. And, and so I was in Sainsbury's and I was getting my shopping and I was sharing my faith. And I came across this guy, I'd been a Christian for a number of years. I didn't know, his name was Guy actually, but like, <laughs> um, been a Christian for a number of years and, 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 and you know, good guy and, and <laughs> a good chap, right? And we went on, went on to become good friends and things over the years. But, 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 and, 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 and so I was like, how's it going? How's it going? You're right. And, and you know, who, who have you met? Who have you shared your faith with? And he was like, you know, he looked at me like, like, like I just, you know, he was like, I'm, I'm doing my shopping, you know. And I remember that being a young Christian, you're a bit like this. I remember this anger in my heart, a bit like, I didn't say anything, but I was like, why would you not? Why would you not be sharing your faith? Where, why? I just couldn't understand it. I just, it, like, it, you know, my mind is a bit like this, unfortunately. You know, it's not always, but, but I was, it just didn't compute. I was like, that's what a disciple does, isn't it? Like, you, sh- you share your faith everywhere you go. Why? And he looked at me like I'd just kind of said something like I was from Mars or something, you know. But what about us? Because now, to be honest, I think I'm more like that. Like I walk across campus and, and like I feel the burden. Like I, it's definitely on my heart, you know, when I'm going around and, and, and I try and with, you know, and I want to. And, and there are times when I do. And, you know, and, but, but days go past where I haven't shared my faith with anyone. It's not a law. It's not, it's not about a law of you've got to share your faith with everything that moves on the planet. And if it doesn't move, share your faith with it. Anyway, but, but, but if it's not even on our hearts, you've got to kind of wonder, well, really? You know, for the campus guys, I've got a few points for the campus today because I'm going after you guys. I'm sorry. Here we go. Here's the first one. But, 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 but do you ask the older Christians? Because I think part of the thing that struck me about the generational lift is we, we tend to look at people who are maybe older than us at their stage in life and then kind of go, well, you know, yeah, whatever, they're not doing an awful lot now or whatever kind of patronizing view. We, you know, and, and we kind of go, oh, yeah. So, you know, and we use that to justify ourselves in the position we're in too. But, but actually a better way to do it would be to kind of ask those people, what were you like when you were a younger disciple? Like, what were you like when you were on campus? Like when I was a young Christian, I was trying to, I, you know, who was my role? Like I would listen to sermons from people 10 years, 15 years before all the time. I, I mean, I would, I would buy, I'd listen to anything I could, you know, 
Why? Because I wanted to know what were those people like, who may be leaders or whatever now, but, but what were they like as campus students? And, and that was my kind of, I was like, I want to live like that. And, but, but that would be my encouragement to you as well. Like, I remember our campus ministry when, when I was a, a student, and, 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 and we, Anne Lise was part of that. We, you can ask her the story. Like, it was something like we, it was 2001, and we, and we decided, we just felt like, we talked about it, and we said, we think God's put it on our hearts. We had a campus ministry of about 20 students. We said, we, we just believe that this year God wants to multiply this group to 50. I don't know why 50. I don't know where that came from, whatever. But we were like, right, we, we, we just believe that God wants this thing to grow. And so we, we were at it, right? We, we were sharing our faith with everything that moved. And yeah, we didn't get anywhere near 50. We baptized, I think, about 10, 12 people or something that year. But that was phenomenal. Like, they, you know, I was like, flat out. But, but it was just, it was on our hearts. And we were sharing our faith everywhere we went. I remember, because again, I'm a bit kind of like crazy like this, but, but when my wife and I were leading the students a few years later, we, we kept a list of everyone who came to the Bible talk. And there was only a small group of us. But in a two-year period, we had 200 visitors come to the student Bible talk. We were studying the Bible at one point with 10 new, new there was like four or five of us in the campus ministry. This is 2009. But we studied the Bible with about 10 people regularly every week. And that was just a kind of norm. That was like, well, this is what we should be doing. We, like, you know, I was working a job at the time, I went, but I was on campus. I just felt like this is, this is what God's put on our hearts. But I think that's the challenge for the student ministry as well. Like is to have that kind of vision, that kind of urgency. It's a little bit like that Venice roadmap again. Like we need to take a look back, I think, at our spiritual sat-nav. So if that's a lesson from Haggai, I'm going down. Here we go. All right. Let's skip forward to Ezra. So the good news from Haggai was that they listened. The people did listen. They actually rebuilt the temple. It was, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a good start, right? And so Ezra, uh, he, he, he returns now with a second lot of 40,000 exiles in 458 uh, BC. So he returns, he brings another lot of exiles back with them. This is 80 years after the original return. Right? So, 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 the people, so you can imagine that now. The people, the original group, 42,000, had come back. They'd, you know, they'd married, they'd had kids, they'd grown up, they'd had grandkids. 80 years now, they'd been back in Jerusalem. Right? The temple was built. But then we pick up in Ezra chapter 9 in verse 1. Ezra 9 in verse 1. After these things have been done, The leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. There's no guys in there. Okay, that's good. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unholiness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the God to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. You know, if you're visiting with us, this passage is is one of those kind of slightly odd ones in the Old Testament, so a bit of context. God had said to them in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7, you know, you are going to be my people of Israel and, and, and the nations around you, man, they are up to some crazy stuff. You know, like one of those nations, one of the gods of those nations, his way of accepting worship was to take babies thrown into the fire as a form of sacrifice. And God said, I don't want you to have anything to do with that. Right? You know, in our modern day, the kind of the idea of kind of, it almost sounds kind of xenophobic, but but God was serious, very serious. And when Ezra hears, like he's, he's, he hears, he's arrived back in Jerusalem and he starts, and, and, and if, if Haggai was all about let's rebuild the temple, let's start to get the worship back together, then Ezra is all about we've got to get back to the law. What, is the, what, is the, what does God teach through the law? What, what is that? That was his mission. And what he hears 
is that these people who've come back 80 years before, they've married these other nations, they've gotten involved with these other nations, they've had kids with these other nations. What's his response? He's shocked. It says he, he tore his robes, his outer robe and his inner robe. He says he, he sat there appalled. He fell to the ground. He says he was ashamed and disgraced. You see, they'd built the temple, but they'd forgotten Scripture. They'd forgotten God's standard. You know, the, the immediate issue here is about intermarriage, but really that, it's more than that. It's about worshipping foreign gods. And, and you read through the list later on of who had actually done this, and it was everyone. It was, it was the rich people, and it was the poor people, and it was, the, he says, even the leaders. The leaders had led the way in this. His response, he tears his robe, it's grief. He pulls out his beard, it's a sign of intense anger. I can't, can you imagine that? Have you ever been to a sermon? I'm not going to try today, but have you ever been to a sermon where someone pulled, where, where someone was so disgusted and so disgraced that they pulled out their beard or ripped out their hair? Can you imagine that? Like there were, I mean, there would be blood, there would be flesh missing, I'm sure, if someone pulled out their beard. I've got a tough tear. I'm definitely not trying it. Anyone? Martin. Martin, you can take a chunk out of Martin's. Can you imagine that? I think if we saw someone like that, saw a preacher with that much conviction, I think, I think we would kind of think, that's, that's a bit over the top, isn't it? Particularly if we're British. Oh, no. Very unpolitically correct. You see, but, but then he prays, and his prayer is all about, God, you gave us a second chance. You gave us a second chance. Look what happened before. You gave us a second chance, and we're messing it up. I have a dog. And my dog smells. I got a text. Edmund was so kind to look after our dog this summer, and I think he's still scarred, you know. We're paying for therapy for Edmund. Um, let me not go there. But Edmund's texted me. We were somewhere or whatever, maybe in Venice, and, and, and Edmund's texted me and said, dude, your dog really smells. Can we get him washed? You know, I was like, I washed him last week. He does smell. I'm sorry. But, but he does. He's a very cute dog, kind of. But he smells. But you know the funny thing is? When you live around him long enough, you kind of get used to it. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> sorry, Edmund. When you live around it long enough, you kind of get used to the smell. Like now and again, like I walk into the kitchen and, oh, what is that? You know, like, but most of the time it doesn't, you know, bother me that much. Maybe it ought to. Maybe it says more about me than the dog. But that's kind of what I think Ezra's talking about here. That the, the, the word is syncretism. Syncretism. Right? And, 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 you know, by the urs, you know, you've come across, I'd never come across that word before. I read it up on it a couple of days ago. Syncretism, where, and, and it happens almost every time in Israel's history and in Christian history, where, where God's standard of what is holiness, of what, what discipleship actually looks like, gets watered down. And it starts to look more and more like the world. Syncretism. You know, we are surrounded, and and I'm going to just labor this point for a little bit, and you have to bear with me, but we are surrounded by worldly influences. You know, a few of us have been doing some different fasts recently, and and one thing really struck me, I was just like, wow. You know, I rely an awful lot on kind of like movies, and you know, like that's my kind of, it's almost like my kind of relief at the end of the day or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I'll watch a bit of a movie, half a movie here, half an hour there or whatever, and I started realizing, wow, that's an awful lot of kind of, you know, just like worldly influences. It's not just, I'm not just talking about like sex and pornography or something, but, but like just the way that people are in the world and kind of, you know, the, the way that they treat each other or they treat women or they, whatever it is. And, you know, but it's right there. It's right there. You know, and, and, and we got rid of terrestrial TV a few years ago because they kept selling our, trying to sell our kids new things and, you know, every advert or whatever. But the truth is, you know, if I, if I apply that same standard to, to myself and I think, wow, you know, 
I'm surrounded, whether it's, you know, uh, how people dress or how they talk at work or, you know, who's kind of part of the in-group there or I go to the shops and, you, you know, the, the labels, the brands, the advertising, whatever it is, or we're driving along even on the way into church and, you know, there's advertising, you've got to have this thing or that thing to be successful or whatever, or you park next to your neighbors and they've got a, you know, on either side of us, I've got two neighbors who are fanatics about keeping their cars really clean, and it affects me, right? I kind of think, oh, my car's dirty, oh man, you know. And, and then I drive out my drive, and my, all my stones from my drive have kind of come out on the road, and I know my next-door neighbor who hates the dog already, kind of is going, oh my goodness, you know. Uh, and he tells me, oh, your stones have come out, and oh, you know, and, and all this stuff, right? But we're bombarded by it all the time. And we get so used to the smell of the world, and then what do we have as our kind of model for Christianity? We have loads of forms of what, if, if, if I was just to put it kind of in political, like what I would call half-hearted kinds of Christianity. There are some great kinds of, you know, church, etc. out there. I'm not, this is not, but, but our model for most of what goes on in Christianity is a half-hearted model. And, and, and how do those two things, like the world on one hand and a half-hearted kind of Christianity on the other, how do they affect us? I, I think what happens is we kind of give ourselves a kind of spiritual pat on the back when we feel like we're doing okay. That's what I think happens. That's, that's what I do. So if, I, you know, if we've had a bit of a quiet time, you know, we've read our Bible and things, and, and maybe we've shared our faith once this year or something, we sort of go, yeah, you know. Doing pretty well. And if our kids aren't swearing, like we go into a coffee shop or something, and we see these kids going ballistic or whatever, we kind of go, yeah, my kids aren't like that, you know. And, and we, get, we pat ourselves on the back. I'm doing well. Doing well as a Christian. But what about discipleship? What, a, what was our standard? One of the things that struck me as a young Christian was, was this was a church. We are a church. And our goal is to put into practice first century Christianity. Is that still our goal? Like, sometimes you kind of think, well, you know, you don't, really, you don't really want to say that. You want to preach that from a pulpit because it makes everyone feel bad. And they kind of think, oh, you know, we're not there. But, but that's the challenge for us, isn't it? This is, this is aspirational. This is, not, this is not a, I'm not trying to put people down. I'm trying to say, this is what we want to be, right? But first century Christianity is radical. We used to talk about, you know, be willing to, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means willing to go anywhere, do anything, give up everything. To be a Christian, is that still our standard? You know, Forrest mentioned it recently, but, 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 but you know, the, the idea of the Birmingham church sending out a mission team a few years from now. But who's going to go? Like, I remember, I, I kind of started thinking. <coughs> because I light my house and I put some work into my house. And I, you know. But then I'm back in the Haggai thing, right? My nice paneled house. I think there are two things that come out from the Ezra passage. Number one is, 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 the, is the Hebrews 1 lesson. Uh, Hebrews 12 verse 1. That we need to grieve and be radical about things. In chapter 10 of Ezra, in verse 1, it, it says, after Ezra had been praying, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll read you the, the, what the message version says. It says, a huge number, a huge number, of the men, women, and children of Israel gathered around him, all the people were all the people were now weeping as if the message as if their hearts would break. They saw Ezra, they saw him, a man with his, you know, and I'm sure that impacted them. I'm sure that you know the blood and the hair and, and this tunic torn and this guy weeping, and they must have thought, man, it must have woken them up. Because they'd seen this stuff going on for a long time, but they'd done nothing about it. And then one man has conviction. And they go, man, this is serious. And, and, and it, says, it says, all the people were now weeping as if their hearts would break. You see, the soft-hearted people responded. How, how do you respond to correction? How do you respond to correction? Proverbs 15.12 says, the fool resents correction so they avoid the wise. The fool resents correction so they avoid the wise. When you feel challenged by something, when someone brings something up with you, how do you, how do you respond? You know, the truth is, and we don't like to talk about this because, you know, if you're anything like me, I, I often feel bad enough about my life anyway. Like, that if someone kind of challenges me on something or says something that I feel like is negative, 
I just kind of find it hard to handle. Can you relate to that? Maybe that's just me. Like, you know, so I try to sort of kind of sugarcoat everything or make everything, you know, and I kind of, I've got to be positive, I've got to be positive. Like I, but, you know, over time, God kind of works on that in my heart, right? And, and, and what I see from Ezra here is, is, is that actually having a depth of mourning about our sin or about our spiritual state is actually a godly thing. You know, not all the time, but sometimes. And I think that maybe the generational lift thing should be one of those times where we can take a good, hard look at our lives and kind of go, really, you know, where, where am I at? And not, it's not about God. You know, we'll come to that in a minute. But, but, but God's not about us being down or negative or walking around in sackcloth and ashes and worms and things. But, but unless you've gone there, unless you've kind of wept and mourned, the change doesn't tend to come afterwards. I mean, that's godly sorrow, right? You know, Second Corinthians 7. That's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So I think, you know, on the one hand, we, we need to grieve as well if that applies to us and our state. But I also think a second lesson comes out from this, which is that we need to at times accept strong leadership in the church. You know, in, in Ezra 10 in verse 3, we see this example. This guy called Shechaniah comes along to Ezra. He leads this crowd of people back to Ezra, the ones who are weeping and mourning. And this guy Shechaniah in, in 10 verse 3 he comes up with this plan. He proposes this plan. He says, look, in light of what we've done, let us send away. Now, hold, hold, listen to this for a second. He says, let us send away our wives and our children from these foreign marriages. What? What kind of leader would come up with that as a plan? We've intermarried with people from foreign races. Let us send away our wives and our children from those marriages. That's not Ezra. That's Shechaniah. What do, you know, what do we know about Shechaniah? Shechaniah, it says that his dad and his five uncles had been involved in this. They had married these other women. His dad and his five uncles. So this is personal for him. This is personal. What does it tell us about Shechaniah? It tells us he valued God's standard above family. That's radical. That's radical. Hebrews 12, verse 1. And I, I really have to kind of try and think about this because like, it has two parts to it. We often emphasize, I think, it might, you know, I, I, it says, lay aside in the message, uh, NRSV, lay aside every weight and especially the sin that so easily entangles. But in the, in the, in the, in the writing, originally, like, it's two different parts. Sin, yes, does entangle, but it also says in the NIV in in version, everything that hinders. Sin that entangles, but... But there's other stuff that's not necessarily sin, but it hinders. And we've got to deal with that stuff too. The sin is kind of like sometimes obvious or more obvious to us. But, but what about the stuff that hinders our Christian lives? You know, society, like we've just said, is so liberal, right? You know, I was kind of going through it. And the song that kept playing over my mind is that, um, is it Roxette? I'm not going to sing it. I did that last time. It was a bad move. But that listen to your heart, listen to your heart. Yeah, that one. With the move as well, with the little shimmy. I did that without meaning to in a lecture this week, right? 200 students, and I did this kind of little shimmy, and they laughed, and I was like, oh, yeah. Don't try the shimmy. God did not make me to dance. All right, so. But society is so liberal. Listen to your heart. You know, if it feels good, do it. And, and, and what comes from that is that we, you know, it almost feels wrong to take a stand on things, to be firm on things, right? Like if someone takes a firm stance on things, sometimes we kind of think, wow, you know, where did that come from? That's wrong. How do we accept strong input from people? I, you know, I'm not very good with that. Like, you know, I've kind of learned over time to be better, but I remember the first few times anyone in my Christian life, actually probably anyone in my entire life, had ever challenged me, but I, it was as a Christian. And, 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 and there was a few people, you know, and... and, and one of them was a, a sister who, it was a Friday night, midweek or something. I don't know what exactly prompted this, but she, she, she was quite blunt with me. She said, you are, so, I was a young Christian, and, and she said, you know, you are so proud. Someone else had called me aloof a few months ago, and I was like, what is that? I don't even know what that means. But, but this sister said to me, you are so proud. And, and I was like, what? I, I kind of went around, <laughs> sorry. I kind of went around asking these, I was like, I not even ask. I wasn't asking. I was. Te- I said. I was like. I was like. She said I was proud. I'm not proud. What is she talking about? She said I was proud. I went home in tears. 
I was like, I'm not proud. Where did that come from? <laughs> Just after that, two people gave me, I don't know if you've seen those books, the kind of the prideful, God, prideful souls. Two people independently gave me the books. Do you know what's worse? I read the book and thought, that's a really good book. Not for me, but really good book, you know. <laughs> You know, I, partly, but I think because of those things, because I've just, you know, like sometimes I walk around, you know, in my natural state, you know, as a non-Christian, and, and even now, like feeling bad about myself or not feeling like, you know, things are going to work out, whatever it is, I find, you know, hard input hard to handle. And I hate it. And, 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 and something inside of us wants to resist. When someone points something out to us, in our character or in the way we're doing something, you know, and, and, and we think, oh, I don't agree with that. Well, that's the time I think we have to really dig deep in Scripture. Right? Someone, when I was about 14 or 15, a guy from the old church I used to go to, shared Proverbs 2 with me. And it wasn't about this, really, but, but I, it stuck in my mind as I was preparing the sermon. You know, it talks about wisdom, and it says, seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure. And I think that's the attitude. When, when someone confronts us, Sometimes we, we, we have a, an armored shell and we let, let things bounce off us. But actually, sometimes we need to go and search. Okay, you know, let, let me look in the scripture. For, you know, is what they're saying right or true? How do we respond to that? You know, church discipline is biblical. I've never been part of a church yet where they've said, you know, you've married foreign women or whatever, send them and the kids away. What kind of, I mean, like, you know, you, you, I think most people in the congregation now would have serious problems with that. But that's what Ezra did. That's the standard they took. In fact, they took months to figure out, to actually kind of sift through and do a real kind of analogy. Like, who, who had done this? And then they made provisions for them, and they sent the wives and the kids away. That's radical. But church discipline is biblical. You know, and, and we've been involved, a few of us, in, in, in some discussions recently and some of it has really kind of shocked me a little bit about like oh my goodness wow you know i think we've forgotten a little bit as a church what what church discipline looks like when 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 the leadership not just kind of off the cuff in crazy situations but but when the leadership takes a stand on something and says biblically this is wrong this cannot go on inside of the church right and if the you know if, if it's a gray area that's something different but if there's a biblical stance on it we've got to have deep conviction as about it you know, Ezra's lesson then is about laying aside every weight. What holds us back as Christians? We've got to deal radically with it. All right. Nehemiah. I promise you that it kind of gets lighter and faster as we go on. All right. So, so Nehemiah. So now it's 445 B.C. And this is 13 years after Ezra. And, and so they'd listened to Haggai. They'd built the temple and then they restored the law. They took radical decisions after Ezra. This, you know, things are going well. And in uh, Nehemiah, this is 445 uh, BC. We'll pick it up in, in uh, Nehemiah 2 in verse 17. So Nehemiah was, was cupbearer. He came back uh, and he said, you know, his, his mission was to rebuild the city walls. He said, then I said to them, you saw that you see the trouble we're in Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Pick it up in uh, then Nehemiah 4 verse 6. So he, he walks around with these group of guys and it says in uh, 4 verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till... Uh, Till half of it reached, no, till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked at it with all of their heart. So, for, so for a long period of time, the you know the wall had been, and 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 for the people at that time, that this is serious, right? Because you're under attack. You've got no defence and protection. So, so Nehemiah comes, and it says, you know, in a very short space of time, that they rebuilt it. How? Because they rebuilt with all of their heart. And then in Nehemiah six fifteen. So the wall, in 6.15 it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. So for this huge, long, extended period of time, there'd been no progress on the wall. And then 52 days, they rebuilt the wall. And it wasn't easy, right? You know, if you read through the, the story, they, 
they had to carry, you know, like they were carrying bricks with one hand and swords with the other and spears because they were under attack from people. Like this was serious. They were, they were hardcore, but still, because they had conviction, they had a plan and they worked with their heart. It actually wasn't that complicated. You know, again, the lesson for us, generational lift, change doesn't have to be long and protracted. Actually, we can see, you know, like big, big changes, like 30-year-long changes begin today. They begin with decisions that we make today. You know, it's not stuff that happens like five years from now, you know, or ten years from now. Like it actually happens now. We could each of us make a decision leaving here today that would change our lives and and the whole church, right? And many of us, and this is, you know, many of us are doing so many great things anyway. But 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 we could make decisions today. You know, I I, I emailed um, um Ed Anton. Uh, preparing for this and kind of just I, you know they, I know that the Hampton Roads Church is very different to ours and all that kind of stuff and it's in America and, but 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 I wanted to ask you know what, what what do they do what do they emphasize for for the marriages etc for their you know for for their kind of you know church and he said well they don't have a kind of a, a law they're not prescriptive about anything like they don't say you've got to do this got to do that etc but he, but he said here's basically what their kind of expectations are as a church, that they have, for the, for the marriage groups or, 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 you know, anyone outside of campus, basically, are kind of part of uh, this, uh, what he was talking about. He said they have two evangelistic events each month and one discipling time per month. That if no one attends the Bible talk, then they go share their faith in a shopping center or the town, something like that. That every midweek they set aside 20 minutes at the end for discipling. But they really encourage, this is the one he, he kind of said, you know, the rest of the stuff is quite flexible, but they encourage everyone who's in the church to be part of what they call a seeker study. Everyone to be part of studying the Bible with someone every month. Um, and they talk a lot about the spirit working, the expectation, and the kind of the, the joy of being involved in the process of seeing people become disciples. And he said that the marriage lead the way in, in, their, in their church, which I thought was quite, you know, I was quite surprised, to be honest, to hear that. But he said in terms of faithfulness, in terms of fruitfulness, the marriage groups lead the way. You know, and, and one thing really sort of struck me thinking about all of this, like in terms of simple plans for moving forward, like that's the kind of Nehemiah lesson, I think. That I think conviction comes and conviction gets renewed through teaching other people. It doesn't really come through, I don't think, I mean, it partly does if you have a good conversation with someone that you're inviting to church or sharing your faith with, but so much of deep biblical conviction actually comes through studying the Bible with people. I had these nightmare experiences. I'm, I'm, I'm a lecturer now, but I had these nightmare experiences. I was a lazy bum of an undergraduate, right? And went through my first and second year, sat through these courses, studying horrendous stuff, Karl Marx and Adam Smith and all these people. And, you know, and I did nothing. I didn't read. I didn't, if I turned up to the lecture, I was drunk. I wasn't a Christian at the time. I turned up, I was drunk. I kind of sat there, whatever. And, and I did nothing, right? And, and, and anyway, so fate would have it. A few years later, I had to teach on that same course. And it was embarrassing. Right? It was embarrassing because I was sitting in a seminar and I was like, I don't know this stuff. I don't, I've never read Karl Marx. I've got to teach it. I'm, you know, it was just embarrassing. It was awful. Like I really, because I was listening to these first year undergraduate students. Who knew, I was doing my PhD at the time. I was like, so what happened? I, well, I, I went and read it, right? You know, I kind of think I, I've got, if I've got to teach this, I've got to talk about it. I better read it. But, but actually, I, as I taught it then, I came to understand it. Like as an undergraduate being taught from the front, I didn't really get it. Like, you, you know, even listening to a sermon, you kind of internally, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah, Ezra, Nehemiah, etc., etc. But, but you actually develop your own convictions by teaching it to other people. And when you sit down and where you explain the Bible to people. And I think that's something that I'd like to encourage us as a church for us all to take that forward. You know, whatever else you take from the sermon, the church would be, you know, revolutionized if all of us regularly were involved in Bible studies with people. You know, Zechariah 4 in verse 10. Don't, don't turn there because the NIV version is slightly different, but the, the King James version has a really interesting take. Zechariah 4, verse 10. It says, Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do not despise the day. I love that. I love that verse. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. When Zechariah is preaching, I think he's aware the people feel overwhelmed. They're like, man, you know, the task of rebuilding Israel after the exiles is too much for us. You know, whoa. And God says through Zechariah, don't despise the day of small beginnings. You know, God, I think, was saying small steps are good. Small steps, if they're consistent, are good. 
you know, I don't know about you, but, but, but I look at my Christian life and I think I sometimes have this, this kind of habit of, of running and stopping, running and stopping. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says walk with God. And walking is something consistent, right? It's not kind of ups and downs and kind of, yeah, I'm going to make, and then, oh. It's, it's, it's consistently walking with God. Let, let, let me ask you, what, what could happen in your life in the church if in the next two weeks you decided, right, for the next two weeks, just for two weeks, I, you know, I can't think further than that right now, but for two weeks, for one week, I'm going to share my faith daily. What could happen in your life? You know, I'm super inspired by Phil. I'm glad he's sitting here today. I didn't ask if I could share this, but he shared it himself, so I don't mind. So, um, but, but I'm super inspired by Phil. I mean, they made a big decision moving back into, into Birmingham a few months ago. But then Phil was sharing that if you were here at the midweek a couple of weeks ago, Phil shared that he'd been out with uh, Nick and Forrest, and they'd been sharing their faith in town. And he just he was like, like Phil was fired up that night. Right? He was, uh, Phil didn't come back kind of going, oh, man, yeah, I shared my faith. It was, and he was fired up. Right? He was excited. He said, I feel like my spiritual muscles are kind of pumping again. I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger back in training, you know. But, 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 but what, what could happen if all of us decided, right, you know, for the next week, for the next two weeks, I just want to share my faith every day. Do you know, do you know what I can tell you I think would happen? I think God would use that. I think, I suspect that even by next Sunday, we would see a whole load of new people sitting here in church. You know, what about if... How many months are there? Two months left till the end of the year, the end of 2017. What could happen in that time if you decided, I- I'm going I'm to have a visitor? In, in that time, I'm going to have a visitor at church. My, my goal is in the next, before the end of this year, I'm going to bring a visitor to church or to my Bible talk or family group or whatever it is. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, that's, that's going to be my goal is to bring a visitor along, to share my faith with someone who comes along to something. Can you imagine, I was sitting outside there just preparing the, the sermon at the back in that funny little room, and there were loads of chairs there, right? Can you imagine an extra hundred seats at the back here? Like, we need to, I think, start thinking about that again. And sometimes that, that feels like overwhelming. Like, I, can't, I can't envisage that. But I can envisage bringing one person along in the next two months. And that person, do you know what? If you do that a few times, or maybe even the first person, that person could become a Christian. And those seats out the back, we could be filling this room in not an awful lot of time. You know, we had this thing on, on Friday night that Chris and Karen did a great job of organizing. And we have a, a, a monthly uh, kind of Bible talk family group kind of fun night with the kids and games and stuff. And, and I walked in there. I was kind of dazed. It had been a busy week and things. And I walked in there and Chris and Karen had done this phenomenal job of organizing this thing. And it was international night and there was food from all over the world. And it looked like Karen had been cooking for like a week. And, you know, and there was just, but there was loads of people there. And I was like, flat, you know, not, not that I should be faithless, but I was just kind of like, whoa, you know. And, and, and I counted that there was eight, fam- eight families in the South Birmingham group who come down to this. And we had seven brand new kind of visitors come along on Friday night. That was awesome. And, and the atmosphere was great. Everyone left feeling pumped and fired up. You know, God's vision is big. But don't despise the day of small beginnings. And as we think about taking communion together, I promise I'm going to finish up here. I want us to think about the God of second chances. You know, God wanted, you, you kind of think, oh, this is a history lesson or whatever. No, but, 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 but God wanted Jerusalem, the temple, the walls to be rebuilt. Why? Because God's a nice architect? No, no, he had something else in mind. His plan was Jesus. You know, uh, in Zechariah 8, verse 20 to 23, let's read that first. So this is Zechariah speaking at that time, but he says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another city and say, Let us go at once and entreat and ask the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to, and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with him because we have heard that God is with you. You know, God had this plan. He wanted the temple and the walls and the city to be rebuilt. Why? So that other nations, that was always God's plan. But what's it really all about? Well, it's this. It's Zechariah 13 verse 1. 
where, where, where again Zechariah preaching and he says, on that day a fountain will be opened. A future day, a day to come. A day long after the building of the temple and things, but a day would come when he would cleanse, when God would cleanse them from sin and impurity. You know, my son has this game on my phone. And, 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 it, and it goes like this. My, 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 you know, he's very good at it, I'm not. You know, but but, but um, it, it's something like this. So, so, so our character, does this have a pointer? So our, our character in the, in the game is this one. Right? But it gives you this funny little character as well. So you start the game and, it, and you have to press on one side of it and then you tilt the thing to kind of go fast or go slow or go over the bumps, do jumps, etc., etc., etc. But, you know, it gives you this little character who kind of goes ahead of you. Sometimes it's really frustrating because he knows how to do all the jumps and everything and we make a mess. But, but he goes ahead of you to kind of show you how it's done. And there are times where, you know, you kind of almost keep up with this little other character. And there are times like that where your bike explodes. That's me, right? Your bike kind of flips on its back and explodes. And it happens again. Not just once. Many times we've tried this game. And and there are sometimes where that that biker, you kind of think, how does he do that? that's, That's crazy. How does he... How does, oh, we, and I've lost sight of him a little bit, but, but look, I, I'm kind of trying to follow and I'm doing some crazy jump. I have no idea how I'm going to land this thing. But the goal is to reach the end. You just keep following that guy to the end. And I kind of think that's a little bit like the Christian life. I like that game. Because there's us on our little bikes, and sometimes our bikes explode, right? You know, we mess up with sin, we struggle, we get down, you know, life gets on top of us and our bike explodes. But we've got this kind of role model. And he, and he can do stuff that we can't do. He knows how the game is played, right? But the goal is just to keep following. The goal is to make it to the end. It doesn't really matter in some ways, kind of, you know, if you mess up along the way and you get back on your bike, the goal is to keep on going. You know, and some of us can remember that when we became Christians, that kind of gut-wrenching feeling of, like, you know, I remember the first time someone studied sin with me, I... The only way I could describe it to anyone was like someone had put a knife in my heart. Like, I can't believe I had this view of myself that was like a kind of bubble, and, it, and then it was punctured, and I, I didn't realize that I was such a, a mess. But then we realized that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. You kind of have to go through that state first before you can receive the mercy and the forgiveness. You know, and, 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 and the truth is, a Christian life, it's always like that. We always have to go through that phase of, of recognizing our sin and our need and our mess and our junk and... You know, sometimes we get distracted by all the other things around us that we think are wrong, but we, we, we fail to see, well, you know, I, I, I'm the mess. I, I, you know, my bike has exploded right now. I, I'm the one who needs the grace. You know, and I think for us as we go into a kind of thinking about a generational lift, a new period, a new era for the church, that we need to, in some ways, I think partly kind of embrace that again, like really take a good hard look at my life. Where where have I been at? Where, where am I at now? But we also need the God of second chances. You know, I love, I love, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Because I think it's, 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 it's about the cross. It's about the cross. It's about, Peter's there, picture it, in the boat, and the, the waves, and the storm, and he thinks, man, we're going to die, and then he sees Jesus walking on water, and what does he do? He takes a step of faith out of the boat. He walks on water, he does the impossible. But then he starts to sink, like we do, Right? The Christian life is a bit like walking water. It's a bit like trying the impossible, but we sink. But then the cross is this. The cross is Jesus reaching out the hand. But the thing is, after he's lifted you back up, then, then you kinda, you've got to try to walk on water again. right? And we'll sink again, and he'll lift us up again. Our bike will explode again. But we're trying to follow, and he always lifts us back. God is the God of second chances. So we're going to take the bread and the wine now. I think, yeah, it is at the back there. Let's pray before we do. Heavenly Father God, I thank you, Father, for the example um, of Israel, Father God, for those people, you know, they're, they're our spiritual ancestors, Father. They, you know, they took a stand, Father. They, they, they did mess up. They did get things wrong, Father, but they kept trying to respond and to improve and to get things right, Father. And, and your love for them was never, it was never conditional. Your love for them was, was, was unconditional. Father, you, you had a plan for them that didn't 
end, Father, when they messed up, Father. You had a love for them that didn't end, Father, when they messed up. But you still, even though your love was unconditional, you still wanted them to learn, to change, to grow, to make amends, to give their whole heart. Father, and I thank you, God, so much, Father, that this is you know, our spiritual lesson, Father, for today as well, God. The Father, we've got to engage with our whole heart, that it doesn't take an awful lot, but we have to recognize where we've been at, Father, in some cases, God. Father, but more than anything, as we take the bread and wine, I thank you, Father, for Jesus. God, I thank you, Father, that you know, you know us. You know that we're weak and we're frail and we make a mess and life gets on top of us and it's too much for us, God, and our bike explodes and our head explodes. And Father, we just, you know, we make a mess, God. But you're the God of second chances, Father. You're the God who keeps, you know, what an incredible, incredible image, Father. You know, Jesus reaching into the water. You know, he didn't let Peter drown, but neither did he want him to stay in the boat, Father. You know, he urged him out, but then he helped him when he struggled. Father, I do thank you, God, for that. I thank you, Father. That's what Jesus' blood is about, Father. Forgiveness, God. Father, help us to re-engage our hearts, Father, if that's what we need to do. Father, thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.